We're going to be continuing in our Shadowland series, picking up 1 Samuel today, chapters 18 and 19, and a few other places as well. Now, by, from this point until the end of the book of 1 Samuel, by all accounts, it's a prolonged and painful saga. One of the overarching themes of this saga can be summarized as follows. Saul, the one who initially was strengthened, is now being dismantled. And David, the one who looks like he's being dismantled, is in fact being strengthened. This major motif is certainly represented in today's chapter. So if you've got a Bible, do keep your finger on the text, out of which we're going to reflect firstly on Saul's conniving, secondly on David's surviving, and thirdly on the fact that in all of this there is a king arriving. Saul's conniving, David surviving, and a true king arriving. Let's go. So Saul's conniving. Chapter 18 picks up in the aftermath of David's defeat of Goliath, which was an upset, uh, if there ever was one. Look at chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. As they were coming home from that event, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. David's a hero. Everybody in Israel is rejoicing except one person. That's verse 8 and 9. And Saul was very angry. And his saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and they have ascribed to me only thousands. And what, and, and what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now that last turn of phrase, Saul eyed David, it's actually a double entendre. There's a pun in the Hebrew because the word eye sounds like the word transgress. So in short, Saul is eyeing David for the person, for the purpose of transgressing against him. And that's precisely what begins to happen because of envy. David's loyal, David, David evokes loyalty and affection at nearly every corner. That's how one commentator puts it. You know, seeing David's name in the headlines makes everybody in Israel happy except for one person. Except for one person. Saul, he's miserable. Through the lens of envy, and with a touch of projection, no doubt, Saul assumes that David is filled with raw competitive ambition, that David viciously has his sights set on the throne. But that is wholly mistaken. In this narrative, it is abundantly clear that David is not driven by raw ambition. David is being carried along by his God-given destiny. David is not Saul's adversary. Saul is his own adversary, chiefly because he stopped regarding God a long time ago, which is why God eventually has to pick David to be the next king. Now, what ensues in the aftermath of all of this, it, it, it displays Saul's ongoing moral decay. We know from chapter 16 uh, that Saul has already become deranged, spiritually and psychologically afflicted. And now we see envy and spiteful resentment added into the equation. And what's the result? Saul becomes diabolically cunning. That's how one specialist puts it. Cunning against David. It's worth noting the bind that this entire situation puts Saul in. After all, in one sense, Saul needs David. David's a skilled warrior, and the Israelite army needs those. Yet with the passing of time, 
Saul's envy and crazed paranoia intensifies, and so his need to get rid of David exceeds his need for David. And in the end, wild jealousy and fear seem to win out. Saul's unchecked enmity spawns a drive to murder. David becomes a hunted man. First assassination attempt, you read about that in verses 10 and 11. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as David did every day. And Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled that spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. In Saul's castle, if you sit down, don't get too comfortable. Now the report of this incident is sparse. Maybe, was, maybe Saul was planning to use his derangement as an excuse for hurling the spear. I just couldn't help it. The spear just leaps from my hand sometimes. Kind of like when I'm angry in traffic, my fingers sometimes do strange things to the cars around me. <laughs> Whatever the case, David is no couch potato. His agility keeps him laceration free. So Saul tries again. This time he acts like Gollum. There's my Lord of the Rings reference for the day. Gollum, when he sends Frodo into the cave so that Shebob the spider can finish him off. In Saul's case, the, the ruse is a bit more complex. Given that his spear isn't fast enough, he decides to make use of his daughters. Great dad, eh? In verse 17, Saul attempts to get David to marry his daughter Merab, but that doesn't pan out, and so he goes to bat again. This time, David agrees to marry his other daughter, Mahel, or Michael, not sure how to say that. Uh, but there's a bomb in the wedding cake. Look at verse 25. And then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, uh, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now, what's, all, what's that all about? This is Saul exploiting the conventions of an honor culture. He knows that David is going to want to do something noteworthy in order to marry a princess. So Saul assigns a task to David that he is sure will result in David's death, that David will not succeed in. But much to Saul's dismay, this plot backfires too. David comes home having killed 200, not 100, of Israel's mortal enemies at that time. By the time we get to chapter 19, Saul is visibly desperate to have David liquidated. He's acting like Idi Amin or Saddam Hussein. To quote one scholar, Saul is now living in a great hall of mirrors of unending suspicion and malice. Stare at verse 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. All the ruses have been dropped. Kill David or you will be killed. I can imagine Saul saying something like that. Shortly after this, Saul actually deploys 3,000 of his soldiers to go hunt down David. This is the conniving of Saul. He's maddeningly blinded by envy and rage, and it is self-destructive. I mean, just look at what results from all of his plotting. On the one hand, his mental health continues to crash and crush, and his own family becomes at odds with him. His daughter Michael, David's wife, and his son Jonathan, they show more loyalty to David than to their own father. At a macro level, what we're meant to notice here is that the one who seems strong, King Saul, is actually being dismantled. And it's happening by Saul's own hand. This is a self-inflicted demise. It's a, it's a tragedy worthy of Shakespearean proportions. Now, before we move on, I want to give you a doggy bag, a little bit of take-home from this story. 
Here's how the rubber hits the road. These toxic traits that are displayed here in this passage inside of Saul, envy, resentment, malice, they're not just in Saul. Guess what? They're in me and they're in you. In fact, they're all over the place, so they often masquerade as things that are more upstanding. But if they are not unmasked, if they are not checked, they will wreak havoc. Saul shows us that envy and jealousy cannot be tolerated. Envy is not a house pet that you keep around for little pleasures and joys. In the end, that little harmless creature will dismantle you. When you feed the little monster, it grows bigger. Just look at Saul. Envy produces malice. Malice spawns murder. Something, something like that can happen to us, and it does. We're not naive. We know the world we live in. Now, maybe we don't strike people dead literally like Saul, but you know what? We can move to murder them in other ways. We can murder their reputation. We can, murder their, we can kill their career. We can destroy their relationships. There are hundreds of ways that you can assassinate people. And if envy and jealousy are not strangled in the right circumstances, guess what? You will end up with blood on your hands. Happens all the time. Beyond this, however, you need to recognize, this is the positive side, that as long as envy is indulged in your life, you're never going to truly flourish because your joy will be suffocated. That's why medieval Christian art depicts envy as a snake coming out of somebody's mouth that then turns to bite them in the face. That picture speaks a lot, doesn't it? I know that from experience. The most joyless seasons of my life have been seasons when I was gripped by envy. Moments when I smiled with other people celebrating success, but that smile was painted on because inside I was mourning. I was seething with contempt, jealousy. So we have to take action. We've got to face this truth about ourselves, and some of you need to do that today. How do, we, how do you respond to the success of others? How do we handle that? How do I handle others' career advancing or coming into financial or social success and status or standing or when others get recognized and praised, especially for things that I want to be good at? How do you handle that? Look at your emotions in those moments. That's a good thermometer for the temperature of envy in your life. You've got to keep that temperature low. Otherwise, you'll be filled with bitterness. You'll have no joy. You will burn up in malice. When I discover envy coiled up in some corner of my life, I need to confess it. I need to drag that darkness into the light. And I realize that few sins are more embarrassing to confess than envy, but the sting of that confession is better than the torment and the bitterness of Saul. Think about that and take action. Take action today. Take it this week. Take it with somebody else, someone you trust. Do it specifically. Get free because you were created more for more. You're created for joy. Christians are not people who don't struggle with envy. If that was the case, I wouldn't be a Christian. That's not what sets us apart. Christians are simply people who refuse to indulge and celebrate envy, who refuse to honor it as a powerful motivator in service of our economy. Envy is very good fuel for that motor, as my friend who's a banker on Wall Street tells me. They love envy and greed over there. It motivates people. But Christians, we confess envy. We, we turn that motor off. We dismantle that motor so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves with joy. On we go. I want to shift now from Saul's conniving to David's surviving. This point is succinct. I want you to look at chapter 18, the end of verse 11. Very short little phrase there. David evaded Saul again twice. Now that's noteworthy. Why? because of what David does not do. There is no retaliation 
In fact, David chooses to even remain near Saul after the first spear was thrown, and he stays around, and then there's a second spear that gets thrown. How's that for turning the other cheek? Throughout the last third of 1 Samuel, David endures relentless persecution by King Saul. The list is long. Hurling spears and assassination plots, exile, David moves from a castle to a cave, uh, the murder of people who helped David, you read about that in chapter 22. It's the harrowing collateral damage of Saul's hostility. There's great personal loss. David's family gets separated. He's put into economic ruin. In the midst of all of this horror, how does David behave? What does he do? He just survives. He opts for mere survival as opposed to lashing out retaliating against Saul in order to turn the tables and his fortunes. David chose restraint instead of vengeance. We're meant to notice that. Now, on the surface, you could come at this text and say, oh, it looks like cowardice. David looks like a wimp or a weenie. Maybe he appears to be someone who is docile and weak, someone who lacks courage or chutzpah. But just, I mean, just consider, in the coming chapters... Later in 1 Samuel, David actually has two documented chances to kill Saul, to eliminate the bane of his existence. Yet he avails himself of neither opportunity. He does only what is necessary to survive. This is not parlor pacifism. This is perseverance and peaceableness while you're being pounded. Listen to verse 19, verses 11 and 12. Saul then sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that they might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, Saul's daughter, told David, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled and escaped. When, David, when Saul sends the soldiers to surround David's house, David sneaks out the window. He goes out the back door. He flees. For a warrior in an honor culture, that is not exactly a show of strength. In fact, it may have been associated with shame. With David, there's no retaliation. There's no counterplotting against Saul. He refuses to fight that is David's response to Saul's conniving. When Saul connives, David merely survives. Now, contrary to appearances, this survival is, in fact, not animated by cowardice or weakness. In fact, it is a show of strength and fortitude. I may think of my strength. This isn't true for me because I'm kind of a small guy. But I may think of my strength in terms of my readiness and capacity to hit back. But in truth, it can take a lot more strength to turn the other cheek. Sometimes inaction is the sign of greater power. By way of modern analogy, that is precisely what we see in the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. He practiced passive resistance. He refused to retaliate on the people who humiliated and beat and ultimately killed him. Because Dr. King knew something. He knew something divine. And he once put it like this. He says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. David knew this too. He's learning it right now and learning to hang on to it right here in 1 Samuel while he's being hammered by vicious King Saul. And all of this stems from David's faith, faith in God, faith that says, I'm going to leave the issue of Saul in your hands, Lord, because if I take things into my own hands, I'm just going to add to the pollution. That's what David's conduct is communicating episode by episode in these chapters. This attitude, in fact, is very clearly enunciated in chapter 24, in that chapter, David's mighty men, his band of soldiers, urged David to dice Saul into pieces, to turn Saul into slaw, right? And there's an opportunity to do it, and David could have done it. He was a skilled warrior. 
But how does David respond? Well, let me read you verse 6. David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do something against Saul, because he is the Lord's anointed. Right? To put my hand against him, I will not do, because he is the Lord's anointed. That's the language of faith on the lips of David. That is the language of someone who has placed their life, their well-being, and their destiny in God's hands, not just formally, but functionally. Faith is why David's response to Saul's endless aggression is merely to survive, to turn the other cheek, to refuse to retaliate, and in fact, even to seek the well-being of Saul, which David does continuously in this narrative. There's a proverb that says, Better is a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. David understands that. In these chapters, Saul is increasingly filled with fear. David, though, he's increasingly filled with faith, which is just to say a steady reliance on God, and that is, that is precisely what God is seeking in his new leader. You see, at another level, all the conniving and surviving of these chapters is really facilitating a king arriving. Amidst the messiness and the agony of this part of 1 Samuel, we're witnessing what you might call the triumph of hope over experience. In the Bible, hope just means that you know God keeps his commitments. And God is committed to the arrival of a king worthy of God's divine anointing. David is being formed here. Martin Luther King, if I can quote him again, he once noted that the ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort or convenience, but where they stand in times of challenge and controversy. And something like that's going on with David. God is in, this is how God's instilling in David the character that is essential for a king in Israel. At least if Israel is to be a light unto the nations. David's path to leadership involves suffering first, and it is prolonged. In fact, from the time David gets anointed back in chapter 16 to the time he actually assumes the throne, a decade spans. And it's a rough 10 years. Not what we would expect for a crown prince. Why? Why does it unfold this way? Why couldn't David just bump Saul and take charge? If I was writing the story, that's how I would have done it. But if I was writing the story, we would end up with a story that is Saul part two. So to understand what God's up to, we need to do a few things. First, we need to press rewind back to David's anointing in chapter 16. Uh, if you were here last week, you may remember that David had the least kingly profile of all of his brothers. Yet God chooses David. God chooses the family runt. Because God looks at the heart, chapter 16, verse 7. Now, when the scriptures tell us that God looks at the heart, it does not mean that David is somehow more godly or good-hearted or greater than any other human. It does not mean that David's a born leader ready to assume the throne at the ripe old age of 16. That's not what it means. Don't romanticize David. The scripture is actually saying that God sees a place for David in God's heart. In other words, God looks at David and says, I can work with this. You can have a part in my purposes and plans if you come with me. But remember, when God initially makes that statement, when David's anointed back in chapter 16, at that point, David's nothing but potential. He's like Steve Rogers before Project Rebirth. If you know the comic book, you'll know that Rogers was originally a scrawny, frail art student, kind of like me. But after an intervention, he ends up as a super soldier, Captain America. Something like that's going on for David. For, for David to assume the role of King of Israel, there's some preparation, and it's crucial because at the moment when he's actually anointed, when he's tapped, he's not spiritually fit. In God's eyes, that means he's not ready. And God does not want another Saul. So David's got to go to spiritual boot camp. 
The essential goal of this training, this formation, is deep-seated, steadfast trust and reliance on God no matter what the circumstances. That's the mission statement. Now, some of you might be thinking, but wait a minute, didn't David already demonstrate that uh, in chapter 17 when he relied on God and overcame Goliath? Remember that great moment, the great story from 1 Samuel? Made lots of movies about it. Didn't David demonstrate his faithfulness then? The answer is yes, but also no. Yes, in that encounter, David did display profound faith in God. Chapter 17, verse 37. Nevertheless, sorry to bust your bubble, it was a one-off incident. And it happened to be in an encounter that promised some pretty substantial glory and some instant gratification in the case of a victorious outcome, which is what happened. That's why David gets praised by the ladies in chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. And for those very reasons... The verdict on David's faithfulness is still out after the Goliath victory. Is David a man who will exhibit consistent trust and reliance on God? You need a track record to prove that. Is David a man who will trust and rely on God when the prospect of glory is remote and distant, when there's no likelihood of instant gratification? That's where the steel is tested. You know this. The Lord wants a king whose character is consistently and passionately oriented towards God, a king who will keep the course of faithfulness even when there are no dopamine rewards, even when there is no promise of popularity and praise. Folks, nobody is born with that type of character. Nobody just has it. It's not a gene that some people have and other people didn't get. That type of character is cultivated. It is forged, which is what God is gradually achieving through all of these hardships that David's experiencing as a result of Saul's conniving. One old preacher put it like this, God is empowering David to put all of his trust in God all the time. And that happens one step at a time over many steps, especially when the steps are taken in the context of trial and hardship and yes, even injustice, which is exactly David's situation. He's a fugitive. And as a fugitive, he learns to depend on God completely, not just with his lips, but with his whole life. There's a key to understanding this theme. It's in chapter 18. It's subtle. Look, look at verse 30, if you would. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that David's name was highly esteemed. The, the text there for highly esteemed literally says precious. David's name was precious. But here's the thing. In the English, it's not immediately clear to whom David's name is precious. This is where the commentators helped me. John Woodhouse says that God himself is the object. David is becoming precious to God. The rest of 1 Samuel should be read with this in mind. That's what Woodhouse argues, and I think persuasively. A one-dimensional reading of David would see his hardships as a sign that God is against him. Life's hard. Maybe God's abandoned me. God's not for me. I mean, just look at, all the sh look at all the challenges and obstacles. Excuse me. I thought I had to sneeze. Look at all the <laughs> challenges and obstacles David has to face. When it rains, it pours. From one vantage, David does not exactly seem like someone who's divinely anointed. Funny how cuss words always wake people up, huh? <laughs> not that I was going to say one. I was going to sneeze. Yet there is more to God's, God's favor than our creature comfort. 
And when it comes to real spiritual formation, and listen up now, suffering and goodness are not opposed. But that's counterintuitive for us in our culture. Yet according to the whole of 1 Samuel, God's goodness towards David, God's goodness is unparalleled. More than anybody else, God wants David to succeed, to find his calling, and to find the glory of his calling. For that to happen, David must become utterly abandoned to God, totally dependent. That's the memo here. That's what it means to be a Messiah in the context of the Israel project. Totally abandoned, totally dependent. And so in the end, we can see that the persecutions of David are kind of a two-sided coin. One side serves to further condemn Saul. The other side's about spiritual training for David, reinforcing David's reliance on God instead of himself and tasting God's ever-intensifying commitment to David. For those who honor God, God will honor. You can read that earlier in 1 Samuel. And as this quality of dependence on God grows, David is becoming all the more fit to be a king. He's becoming more precious to God. Becoming more precious to God. Because David is learning that God's kingdom isn't something that's taken. It's not, it can't be snatched like Frank and Claire Underwood, abduct America. It's something that is given. The kingdom that David is awaiting, you can't seize it. It's got to be received. There is some honor you don't take for yourself. David's got to learn that. It is a radical contrast from the leadership legacy of King Saul. Friends, this is about the arrival of a king, the formation of a leader who is always chasing after God's heart. A leader, this is one of the most important things I'm going to say this morning, a leader who stakes his future on what God says rather than on what he can do. Catch that? That's what's going on here. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's about embodying the outlook of Psalm 27. The Lord is my life and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Though an army, a camp against me, my heart, it will not fear. What does this have to do with us here and now? The answer, everything. Absolutely everything. Let me, let me just stress two things here in closing. In the first place, David's experience is relevant because we, too, have been tapped to become princes and princesses. Good morning, your highnesses. We, too, are heirs to a kingdom. If you use your daily office, I'm sure all of you do every morning, you, you know that you, praise that you pray that exact phrase every morning. We are heirs to a kingdom. In the New Testament, in Matthew 25, Jesus says that those who place their trust in God, those who rely on God, carry a royal anointing. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That's Jesus speaking. To know God is to know that that is your destiny. But am I ready for it? Do I have the character for it? Am I being formed? We need to be prepared. We need to be trained like David so that we can trust God in more than a superficial way. And in this arena, even all of us healthy Vancouverites are a bit out of shape. To the degree that you see this, your perspective on spirituality, spiritual formation, is going to be massively reconfigured, even turned upside down. You see, when it comes to the living God, spiritual growth doesn't center on stretching three times a week and meditating and having a balanced diet. Nothing wrong with those things. But that is not God's core focus. It's not enough. Spiritual growth isn't about getting what you want from God or getting what you want out of life. It's about letting God make you what he wants. And what God wants is nearly always more beautiful than what we might otherwise imagine. We want to go to the moon. God wants to take us to the stars. 
An old horse dreams about regaining its youthful fitness and strength. God wants to make it into a unicorn. That's the posture we've got to get into. Some of you are Christians, but you haven't really come to terms with this yet. You don't rightly understand how God treats people that he loves and calls, and so your expectations may be, in fact, backwards. Here's how Jesus sums it up. You gain by giving up. You get exalted by humbling yourself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who, meet, who are meek, those who wait on the Lord. I want to read you a pastoral letter. It was written in the 1700s by a French priest called Fenelon. He gets it, and he has helped me probably more than anyone else except the Bible to get it. This is what he says. Pastoral letter written to somebody he was caring for. Evil circumstances are changed into good when they are received with an enduring trust in the love of God, while good circumstances may be changed into evil when we become attached to them through the love of self. Nothing in or around us is truly good until we become detached from the world and totally abandoned to God. So even though you are now in these bad circumstances, put yourself confidently and without reserve into his hand. I would give anything to see you in better circumstances, but if the evil circumstances are teaching you to be sick of the love of the world, then that is good. The love of self, which the world constantly advocates, is a thousand times more dangerous than any poison. I pray for you with all of my heart. We need to be made spiritually fit. That's what it looks like because a kingdom awaits. You recognize how God really prepares us for it? Not by stretching our bodies, but by stretching our trust in Him. We need that. Our egos are out of control. We're addicted to autonomy. So we've got to learn to trust and wait on God just like Davy Boy. Otherwise, we'll end up like Saul. Second and final thing to highlight, David's training, David's arriving as a true king, doesn't just tell us about him, doesn't just tell us about us. It also tells us about God himself, God the Son. That's how he's known, as, known to Christians. You see, the radical reverence that is being instilled in David, it echoes a thousand years later in the life of Jesus. He too was anointed one, a Messiah, the man born to be king. And as a Messiah, just like David, Jesus learned Trust and reliance on God his Father. Listen to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5 in the New Testament. Although Jesus was born a son, that was his status, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus also had to suffer before receiving his kingdom. But Jesus was a greater Messiah than David. You might say he mastered Messiahship in a way that David never did. And Jesus displays God's power and creativity like nobody else. Because of what Jesus suffered, if I can put it bluntly, what he suffered was incomparable with anything David ever experienced. And what Jesus achieved surpasses anything David could ever have fathomed. You see, just like David, Jesus had adversaries. But it wasn't just one foul king in a small ancient Near Eastern country. Oh, Jesus had to overcome the world. That's what he says in John 16. Jesus has to overcome our hostility and our indifference towards God, the one who created us in love. Jesus even had to do that for his first 12 disciples. They said they liked the way of God, but they didn't always act like it. And when the way of God was coming to fruition, when Jesus got arrested and was sent to be crucified, they abandoned him. His best friends forsook him in his moment of need. If there was ever a good reason to write people off, there's one. That's not what Jesus did. You see, just like David, but in a more astounding way, Jesus says no to malice, no to vengeance. He refuses to retaliate against his foes and also his fair-weather friends. 
I will not swing the sword of cold justice. I will not avenge. I will show you grace. That's what Jesus says. In fact, that's who Jesus is. The kind of love in him, it covers a multitude of offenses. That's who Jesus is at the cost of his life. David never had to do that, which is why the kingdom that Jesus received is infinitely greater. I said earlier that according to 1 Samuel, a true Messiah is a leader who stakes his future on what God says rather than on what he or she can do. Friends, that is Jesus. That's why he laid down his life instead of scrambling to save it. And by trusting God to the point of death, Jesus not only got his life back, but he also got our lives back. For to as many as receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. John chapter 1. That is why Jesus is God's most precious Messiah. The Hebrew word, precious, it literally means rare. After all, something, you know, something's precious if there ain't much of it. That has never been more true than with reference to Jesus Christ. He is rare because there is nobody else like him. So may he be precious to me, and may he be precious to you.